home, yet you haven't yet seen the stage. There he is. <laughs> the Bexillian wonder. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Well, as Paul's mentioned, we are continuing our series in James today. We're in the second half of chapter one. So you've got a Bible, you might want to open there. And today we're going to find that James has got a message for us, which I think some of us are going to find quite surprising. We're maybe actually going to find it a bit uncomfortable, and probably we're all going to find pretty challenging. But it's a message which gets right to the very heart of James's letter. Really, it's the whole reason why he's written his letter. And it's the message which underlies everything else he says, everything we're going to look at over the next few weeks. The message James has for us in the second half of chapter one is that God wants you to be religious. God wants you to be religious. The passage ends, uh, verse 27, James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says there's a religion that God wants, a religion that is pure, that is undefiled. That's why we've called this series James' religion that God accepts, because that's what James is talking about. But I can hear some of you thinking, Andrew, Andrew, come on, you know, it's about relationship, it's not about religion. Or it's not about uh, rules, it's about relationship. You might be familiar with a very popular YouTube video, I've got a picture, a guy called Jefferson Bethke, who posted this spoken word a few years ago called, Why I Hate Jesus and Love Religion. And Christians were raving about it and posting it, and it's had over 32... Oh! Why I hate religion but love Jesus. The rest will explain, hopefully. And so he goes, and people loved it and posted it. It's had over 32 million views, and Christians were going, yeah, yeah. You might think, Andrew, Andrew, come on, read the New Testament. Paul writes to the Galatians. He's writing to these religious people, and he's telling them off and telling them, that's not what God wants for you. Well, just think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. He hated these Pharisees because they were religious guys and he spoke really harshly against them. They didn't understand it's about relationship. It's not about rules. We think surely Jesus knew it's about relationship. It's not about religion. It's not about rules. But of course, Jesus was pretty religious. Jesus was a Jew, an observant Jew. He kept all of God's law perfectly. Jesus went to the temple. Jesus celebrated the Jewish festivals. He did all the religious things that the Jews are meant to do. And when you think about it, Jesus seemed to want his followers to be pretty religious. He gave rules. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. He gave rituals. He told us to be baptized in water. He told us to eat bread and drink wine in remembrance of what he was going to do. He established a community of his followers, which was to have leadership and structure and discipline. And then we read through the New Testament, we find that James tells us, There's religion that God accepts, religion that is pure, that is undefiled, religion that God wants. God wants you to be religious, but the key thing is we've got to understand what religion is. So often we talk about religion, we use the word religion, but we're actually thinking about legalism or we're thinking about hypocrisy. Religion, God wants. Legalism, hypocrisy, he doesn't. Legalism is when you think that by doing good stuff, by following lots of laws, you can kind of earn some favour with God. You think, if I do enough, if I keep God's law, if I'm a good person, God will forgive me, kind of forget the stuff I do wrong. God will love me. God will accept me. It's trying to earn something from God. That's why Paul wrote to the Galatians. That's why Paul wrote to Rome as well. There are people saying, oh, we just need to keep God's law and that's enough. And he's saying, no, no, no. You can't get forgiven by doing good. You can't earn salvation. God doesn't want us to be legalistic, and God doesn't want us to be hypocritical. 
To be hypocritical is to say one thing or to teach one thing, but then to do something completely different. And that's actually why Jesus spoke against the Pharisees. Jesus' issue with the Pharisees was not that they were keeping God's law or wanted to keep God's law. Funnily enough, when God gave the law, his intention was that people would try to keep it. Jesus' issue with the Pharisees is that they say they keep the law and they teach the law and they are really fussy about it, but they don't do it. Their heart wasn't following their speech. He says they're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, it's all pretty and clean and shining in the sunlight, but inside, there are stinking, rotting bodies. He said on the outside, they looked great. They claimed to be great, but actually, they weren't really doing it. They were being hypocritical. But religion isn't legalism. It isn't hypocrisy. Actually, things like that video, a lot of what he says is true, but that's because he's talking about legalism and hypocrisy. But he's wrongly saying it's religion. But God wants us to be religious, not legalistic, not hypocritical. But he wants to have religion, and religion rightly understood is an outward expression of an inward relationship with God. It's when you have a relationship with God, the way that you express that, the way you live that out, the way it makes a difference on the outside, as it were. That's what James means when he says God wants us to have pure and undefiled religion. And you see, the reason I'm stressing this, the reason I'm highlighting this for us today, is that the real risk of the relationship, not rules thing, or relationship, not religion thing, is we begin to think that what we do and how we live doesn't matter. We think, actually, it's all about relationship, and then what I do, God really doesn't care, I can do what I like. Friends, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible's really clear that God really, really cares how you live. How you live is hugely important. And actually, we know this. If you think about it, we know that you can't have relationship without having rules. You can have rules without having relationship. That's basically how a judge works. He's the one who implements rules without any relationship with the people involved. It's all clinical and legal. But you can't have relationship without rules. Think about marriage. The way that marriage works, there's a relationship there, but the relationship is maintained by the fact there are rules. You don't have relationships with other people when you're married. There are rules which maintain it. Think about parent-child relationships, even friendships. There are these unsaid, unwritten rules, which are the things which maintain the relationship that already exists. How you live matters because how you live flows from the relationship. How you live doesn't make the relationship. It's the response to it, a flowing from it. Think again about marriage. Marriage happens. The marriage starts. That relationship is established as two people stand before God and commit their lives to each other, make this covenant agreement together. The relationship exists, and then the rules are the thing which maintain it. They maintain good relationship. They bring the blessing to it. It's the same with us and God. The relationship exists through faith in Jesus. It's a legal thing, an unchangeable thing. But we maintain good relationship with God by living in obedience to him. That's what James means when he's writing about pure and undefiled religion. And really the whole of James's letter is written to counter the kind of thinking that says, as long as I believe in Jesus, I can go and do whatever I like. What I do really doesn't matter. And James comes full throttle and says, no, no, no. What you do is hugely important. God cares how you live. And actually how you live is an outward evidence of what is going on inside, going on in your heart. And I think it's a message which is hugely, hugely relevant to us today. It's James's message throughout the letter, but he really kind of first outlines it for us in this second half of chapter 1, which having done a long introduction, which is what Paul talked about last week, he kind of dives in with the real body of the letter. And we're going to see that he talks in three sections in the second half of the chapter, about three different elements, kind of taking us on a journey, thinking about this idea of pure and undefiled religion. 
So first off, he gives us some really practical teaching. Teaching about hearing and about speaking. So let's read what he says from verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He starts with some really down-to-earth, practical stuff we can apply about hearing, about speaking. He says there are three things we need to do if we want to follow God in the area of our speech. The first is we're to be quick to hear. That means we're eager to hear, to understand what people are saying. Then we're to be slow to speak, and we're to be slow to anger. This is such, such good wisdom for how we interact with other people. When we interact with other people, especially maybe people who think differently from us, who've got different viewpoints to us, it's so important that we are quick to listen. We're eager to say, you know, tell me what it is you think. Tell me why that is. To understand, to wrestle with it. And it should only be when we've really thought, we've understood, that we then speak. And we speak cautiously. And we keep a check on our emotions and our tempers. And actually, we process things before reacting. It's something which sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet it's so, so difficult to do. To actually think, no, I'm going to stop. I'm going to listen. I'm going to try and give you uh, my attention. I'm going to try and understand. And then I'm going to respond calmly and carefully. It's the kind of wisdom which is so useful to us at the moment, I think. We're coming up to a general election. I think it's a time when it's good for us to hear advice like this. Often, actually, we're so slow, if at all, actually, to listen to opposing viewpoints, to people we disagree with politically. Actually, God says we should be listening. We should be seeking to understand, seeking to see where people are coming from. And only when we've really done that and we've been quick, eager to listen and understand, should we then respond. We respond in love, seeking to build people up, not to tear people down. We respond uh, calmly as well. Another place where I think this is so helpful to apply is social media. It's so easy for us to read very quickly and to, uh, to read very slowly, be slow to take it in, and to be very quick to post, very quick to comment, very quick to react. It's so important when we're engaging with things on social media to read and be eager to understand, to give people our time to actually engage with things before responding, or even not to respond often, actually. Be slow to comment. Be slow to react. Such simple things, but so difficult to do often. But actually, that's how we can use our speech in the way that God wants us to. And now James tells us why it is that God wants this. He says, verse 20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God there means the kind of living that God wants, the living that is righteous, that is right before God. He says, actually, if we act out of anger, that doesn't produce the kind of living that God wants. He says, learn to control your anger, learn to be quick and eager to listen and slow to speak because that's how you're beginning to live as God wants you to live. Now, of course, he's generalizing here. There's such a thing as righteous anger when we are rightly stirred about injustice, about wrong going on, and that can motivate us to the right action. But generally speaking, he's saying human anger does not lead to good. We need to learn to control our responses, to control anger, because anger actually leads us often to live in ways that are contrary to what God wants for us. What should we therefore do? Well, James says, verse 21, Therefore, 
put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. And the word put away there is also can be translated take off. It's a word that would have been used for unclothing. He's saying all that filthiness, rampant wickedness, that wrong thinking, wrong action, just take it off, throw it off, throw it away. And then he says instead, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This implanted word is God's word. Here it primarily means the gospel, the good news of what God has done in history in Christ. And notice, I think it's really interesting, James tells us to take off the bad stuff. Take it off, throw it away. But here, James doesn't say, and put on the good. He doesn't say, take off one thing and put off the right thing. Actually, because he knows it's not just about behavior modification. It's not about stopping doing bad stuff and starting doing new stuff. Actually, we can't do that on our own. He says, take off the bad stuff, the old stuff, and then what? Receive the word which is able to save. It's only by receiving the word that we can be transformed inside so that we can actually then do the right thing. So James isn't saying in this letter, try harder, you're not doing enough. Put in more effort, put in more effort, you'll do it. He's saying, no, no, no. Receive the word of God. Be transformed, and then you're able to live out pure an undefiled religion. So if you struggle to be quick to hear, to be slow to speak, to be slow to anger, you can only be changed by the work of God, through the word of God. And often I think it's as we do these things, as we seek to be faithful to God, that he by his spirit works in our heart. It's like this partnership that goes on, that as I say, God, I want to get better at doing this. And I make steps to try and do it, that he comes and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to do that. So he started with this really down-to-earth, practical stuff. Here's what you should do in relation to hearing and to speaking. And then he kind of picks up the idea of hearing, and he moves on to now talk about hearing and doing. This is verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James says that we're commanded not just to hear God's word, not just to know it, to understand it, to be able to recite it to other people, but actually to do it, to act upon it. He says actually if we don't act upon what we know of God's word, we're just deceiving ourselves. We're saying we're religious, we're saying we love Jesus, but actually if we're not acting on what Jesus says, he's saying we're deceiving ourselves. Our heart isn't where we're saying it is. And he says that to hear uh, the word of God and not to act on it is like looking in a mirror, turning away and instantly forgetting what you look like. It's like looking, seeing you've got stuff around your mouth and your hair's in your mess and all sorts, and you turn around, you do nothing about it, you go on about your day. And I can really relate here, okay? My short-term memory is absolutely shocking. I do things like I fill a teapot, and literally 30 seconds later, I go to fill it again with water because I've forgotten it's happened. He's talking about that kind of pointless thing of not persevering in what you're doing. You see yourself, and it makes no difference at all. And he contrasts this idea of just being a hearer with being a doer. He says, actually, the one who's a doer, he's the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. And the contrast comes in the perseverance. Rather than just looking at a fleeting glance and giving up, actually there's perseverance. I've looked, I've heard, I'm understanding, I'm persevering by doing as well. And notice how positively James sees the law here. And notice he was talking about the word, 
and now he's calling it the law. And he's talking probably about the Old Testament law, but interpreted and fulfilled through Christ, which still gives us wisdom, actually, for how God wants us to live, because it reveals to us what God is like. It's not about earning anything. It's not about trying to curry favor with God. It's about expressing, expressing that heart relationship, that heart connection with God. And he also calls it a law of liberty or of freedom, which might seem really weird to us. But actually, he's expressing the fact that to live God's way is to find true freedom. From the outside, it might look really constraining and restrictive, but actually you step into it, you find it's true freedom. Because it's what we're made for, and you find true freedom when you're doing what you're made to do. And he concludes his little section on doing and hearing with a promise. He says, actually, in contrast to the person who just hears and does nothing, the one who does, the one who hears and acts, he, this one, he says, at the end of the verse, will be blessed in his doing. The Bible says that actually when we're obedient to God, God blesses us. That's exactly what Jesus said. Luke uh, eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's a biblical principle throughout the Bible that actually being obedient to God brings blessing. It's not earning salvation. Remember that relationship already there. It's an unshakable kind of legal reality. But it's about maintaining good relationship. We get blessed as we live in obedience for God. We experience the true freedom that he's won for us as we live in obedience to him. So he's gone, here's some wisdom on hearing and speaking. And then when we're talking about hearing, let's talk about hearing and doing. And now he gives us some examples of what does it look like to be a doer and not just to be a hearer. This is the last few verses, starting at 26. He says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He isolates three things which are markers of true religion, the religion that God accepts. Not that these are the only things that it looks like to live out faith before God, but three which James clearly thinks are really, really important. And actually, we'll see in the coming weeks, as we look at the later chapters of James, these are the three uh, elements of true religion, religion God accepts, that James most often talks about and most often brings up. The first one is speech. And of course, he's already talked about speech. And actually, it's striking that all throughout the Bible, speech is a big topic. God really cares how we speak. He really cares how we use our words, which we might see as a bit odd. We kind of think of how we speak probably as one of the least significant things. We think if you use your speech badly, it's just a really minor sin. It's kind of a a tiny thing. God really, really cares about how we speak. God really cares about how we use the speech that he has given us. Partly that's because it reveals our heart. What comes out of our mouth flows from our heart. It reveals what is really going on inside. And what James says here is that to say you're religious, which remember means for James that you're in a right relationship with God, but actually not to control your tongue, he says it's to deceive yourself. He says you can say it, but it's not true. He says actually such religion is worthless. And he uses the image of a bridle. A bridle is what you put on the mouth of a horse if you're riding it to direct it in different ways. He's saying we need to bridle our mouths. We need to take control so that we use our speech well, so that we're not acting hastily and speaking out of anger, but actually we're choosing when to speak. We're choosing to use our speech for good things. Speech actually is hugely, hugely powerful. Speech can build up and can encourage. Speech, the Bible even tells us, can bring life. 
But on the same hand, actually, speech can tear down. It can cause death. It can ultimately actually bring death to people. And so a good thing to always ask before you say anything, a good principle to live by, is to ask, will this build up and benefit? Or actually, will it tear down and do harm? Just stop for that moment before you say that thing. I think, will this build up and benefit? Or will it tear down and do harm? Again, social media, that's so, so worth asking. Wait before you press the enter key. Will this build up and benefit? Or actually, is this tearing someone down? Is this doing harm? We need, as James said at the beginning of this passage, to be quick to hear and understand, eager to do it, but to be slow to speak. If you want to please God, if you want to have religion that is pure and undefiled, you have to learn to control your tongue. The second thing that James talks about as a marker of true religion is care for the vulnerable. He says this pure and undefiled religion, the religion God accepts, God wants, includes visiting, for, get visiting and the word also has the nuance of caring for orphans and widows in their distress. In the ancient world where James lived, orphans and widows were pretty much the most vulnerable people in society. Two classes of people who were very limited in their uh, ability to make any sort of income, who lived in a world where there's no welfare, there's no help from the state, no real official bodies helping them at all. And that left them hugely, hugely vulnerable. But what James is saying here, when he's saying that you as God's people should care for the vulnerable, he's reflecting God's heart. Because all throughout scripture we find that God's heart is orientated towards, almost biased towards, the vulnerable, the poor, the disadvantaged. We find things like in the Psalms, Psalm 68, 5, God is called the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. And actually quite possibly the reason why James has called God father in this verse is because he's thinking of that. He's thinking about orphans and widows. He's thinking, yeah, God is the father of the fatherless. He's the protector of widows. And the position of our heart in relation to the poor and vulnerable is a good uh, measure for how much we've caught hold of God's heart and allowed him to transform us. It's like sticking a thermometer in and seeing, have I caught who God is, what God is like, and what he wants me to be like? For us in 2017, there are lots of modern equivalents to the orphans and widows mentioned in this verse. We could talk about refugees, people who've experienced often horrific things, whose friends and families often have been killed in conflict, who come to new countries with absolutely nothing, hugely vulnerable, nothing to cling on to, nothing to eat, nothing to uh, nowhere to live, nothing at all, and come to make a new life. We could talk about victims of human trafficking, people who often have been tricked with the promise of a better life, the promise of something better than the difficulty of their current situation but actually find themselves tricked into being enslaved. We could talk about children, even in this country, who live under the poverty line. They live and their parents are not able to get for them the basic things they need to live and to be healthy. But actually, we can also still talk about orphans and widows and widowers, even in our society today, still sometimes can be very vulnerable people. There are currently 4,000 children in this country who are awaiting adoption. 4,000 children who don't have families, don't have a safe place to call home, don't have a place to be loved, to be cared for, to growing, to learn from. All the things that many of us would have taken for granted, the things that we take for granted for our children. There are thousands of children still in this country who don't have that. There are another 90,000 children who are in care, so they're either in foster families or they're in children's homes, who don't have that solidity, that kind of um, firm foundation 
of a long-term family who love and care for them. And the stats about children who are in care are heartbreaking. Things like they're four times more likely to face mental health difficulties. They're far less likely to do well in school. They're two times less likely to be in education or in employment by the age of 19. And actually within that 90,000, that includes 4,000 children who've come to our country under 18 as refugees. Many of them, their families have been killed, some of them before their eyes, in conflicts around the world. They don't have families. They don't have anything. They're still some of the most vulnerable in our societies around us. And we can even talk about widows, widowers today. Sometimes that can place people in a hugely vulnerable position as well. I heard a story just this week from our food bank that runs in this building. A local lady whose husband had died, she was a stay-at-home mum of a couple of teenagers. And she was able to receive um, some state support, but then there were gaps between different types of that and complexities. And she found herself, a few weeks after her husband died, unable to feed herself or her children. So in the midst of the pain and grief of losing her husband, she then had the difficulty, the stress, the strain of thinking, I can't even put food on the table to feed my two children. These are just some of the vulnerable in our society. I said there's so many, actually, there's so much need. And God wants our heart to break for these people, for these situations, in the same way that his does. And he wants us to show that and to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that we love the people he loves and we care about the things that he cares about by acting, by taking action. And there's lots of ways we can do that, just to think on those two areas I've talked about there. We can think about the children who are in need in this country. It might be that God calls you and your family to foster, to provide a home to someone who's had to be taken out of a very difficult situation. It might be God calls you to adopt, actually to offer that forever family, as people wonderfully call it, a place where a child can be loved and cared for and can grow and can be safe and secure. It might be that you know people who foster or know people who are adopting And actually, you can stand alongside them. You can love them and support them and pray for them. You can be family for them and with them. It might be that you think, I want to get involved with an organisation which is working to tackle this problem. We had, I think last year it was, we had Chris Candia here. He's the head of a charity called Home for Good. Home for Good are a Christian charity, and they're seeking to uh, mobilise Christians to find permanent homes, permanent families, for these children who need um, to be adopted, to find more and more foster families. There aren't enough people fostering in the UK at the moment. It might be you think, I would love to get behind the work of someone at Home for Good. That can be financially, that can be in praying, that can be in going on the website, seeing about different ways you can get involved in supporting what they're doing. And of course, that story of the dear lady who lost her husband and then couldn't provide food for her family. Food Bank is one of the great ways that we as a church, in partnership with other churches across our town, can actually uh, live this out. We can care for the poor, for the vulnerable in our society. Today, obviously, is a great opportunity to get involved in that, the Food Bank Gift Day. The forms you'll see around you give you every option possible. You can pledge money, you can pledge food, you can give a gift, you can do a standing order. However you want to do it, you can express God's heart in that way. But I also want to encourage us, while we want to be hugely generous today, I want to encourage us to think beyond. Because the honest truth is, it's very easy for these kind of things to tick a box, to put some money in the bucket, to bring some cans, and to kind of think, I've done that bit of pure and undefiled religion. We kind of sear our consciences, we've done enough, and we'll leave it at that. But the thing I've just very personally felt challenged with, if I've, as I have wrestled with this passage this week, is how does my lifestyle reflect God's heart for the poor? The fact is, it doesn't cost me much to give some extra tins or to put an offering in the bucket. 
but actually how does my lifestyle, day in, day out, the way I live, actually express the fact that there are vulnerable people around us. There's people whom God's heart breaks for and whom he wants my heart, our hearts to break for too. How does your life change? How do you shape it around care for the poor? And of course, that would look different for all of us. The things we can do, the resources we got, but there'll be ways that you can do it. Ways that fit with what God has given you, how God has provided for you, how God has gifted you. So that's the second thing that James talks about. This expression of pure and undefiled religion is care for the poor. And the final thing he talks about, he talks about being unstained from the world. When he talks about the world there, he means the world apart from God, the world which has kind of separated itself from God, which is rebelling against him. Because the fact is, if you're a Christian, the Bible says you're not actually a citizen of earth. You're a citizen now of heaven. You have a new citizenship. Jesus told us, John 17, we're not actually of this world because he knew we're citizens of heaven. And Jesus says that we're to be light. So where there's darkness all around us, we, as his people, are to be his lights in the world. We live in a world which is fundamentally opposed to God, and we can often forget that and not recognize that. It's a bit like it reminds me, I think this is true, of that experiment, I wouldn't do it, you can apparently do it with a frog. When you put a frog in a pan of cold water and you gently boil the water, this is really horrible, sorry, um, and they don't realize what's happening. It happens so gradually, they don't realize what's happening. It's a bit like I think we live in a world and it's all around us, it seeps around us all the time. We forget the world is opposed to God. We become immune to so many things around us which actually are unrighteous, are not what God wants, are in rebellion against him. And we kind of come immune to it. We begin to accept it. But actually, James says a marker of true religion is to keep ourselves pure from that. Are you shaped more by the world or more by the word of God? Do you live more in obedience to God or more in obedience to the way of the world? And are you kind of aware of the things around you which could potentially stain you, as James puts it? Do you think about how you can be affected by TV, by films, by songs, by the internet, by social media, even by friends? And these aren't things that we want to completely chuck out the door, but we need to be aware of where things can stain us, things can drag us away from God. So actually we can be proactive in not letting them do that. I know for myself, in the last year or so, I've just become a lot more picky at what I watch on TV. Actually, when there are things which are unhelpful, things which are just unrighteous, things which we take for granted and we don't bat an eyelid at, but actually are rebelling against God. And the truth is that sometimes my friends have laughed at me when I've said I won't watch things because of the stuff that's in it. But I'm determined I don't want to be stained by the world. I want to be having pure and undefiled religion living God. And that will be costly. Being a light in the darkness, you're meant to stand out. You're meant to be different. That's kind of the nature of what's going to happen. And sometimes that will mean you get the mickey taken out of you by your friends. But actually it's worth it to express our love to God, to have pure and undefiled religion before him. I'd like the band to come and join me up back on the stage. God wants us to be religious, to be doers, and not just to be hearers. So the challenge to us all today from what James has said is, are we doers or are we just hearers? We can know all the stuff. We can recite chapter and verse, but actually, are we also living it out in our lives? For some of us, actually, today will be a day when we need to repent. We might need to repent of thinking, that actually, because I believe in Jesus, I can do whatever I like. How I live really doesn't matter. We might need to repent of specific things in our lives. We think, actually, God has convicted me today. That's not right. That's not pure and undefiled religion. To repent means to realize you're going the wrong direction, to stop, 
to turn 180 degrees and to walk back in the other direction. It's about remorse and about a choice to stop and to change. And for some of us here, God will be speaking about some of the specifics that James mentions in that passage. Maybe for you it's your speech. Maybe you feel God challenging you actually to think about being quick, eager to hear, but being slow to speak. To speak to build people up rather than to tear people down. Maybe it's the whole area of care for the poor. You feel God is stirring your heart that you want to make care for the poor a a part of your lifestyle. Not just something you do at a food bank gift day. Or maybe it's actually that whole thing of being unstained from the world. And there are things even now that God is highlighting where you're allowing the world to stain you, to skew your view, to draw you ultimately away from God. We're going to join together in worshipping a moment. And basically it's just leaving space for God to speak to us. Might be one of these things, might be multiple of these things that he wants to speak to us about. And it just gives a chance for us to respond as individuals, just to be open and honest with God, to respond to him, to repent if we need to, to ask him to fill us with his Holy Spirit, to transform us, to equip us, to enable us, to ask us to give him, us, his heart, that we might express it. Can I want you to stand with me? The guy's going to lead us in worship. Let's engage with God, see what he wants to say to us, see how we can respond as we do that. Just after that, we're going to take our gift day food bank offerings. If you've got children in Tops Club or in uh, Energy, please do go and collect them during this song. Bring them back in. Engaged children will come and join us as well. And then we're going to give together as a family, expressing our heart of care for the poor as we do that. Let's worship together.
Amen. I thought Andrew did excellently. I thought he communicated very, very well. Really, really good. So I know a load of you have already brought food. You've brought it in shopping bags.